This was a sleeper. This was an entire career that I was totally unaware of and have now become very active in and thrilled just to discover Emily Mason's work. I'm Annika Olson, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. The term abstraction gets used and thrown around a lot in the art world, usually in regard to describing a certain painting's or sculpture's style. Now, just going by the dictionary's definition, Abstract is described as being dissociated from any specific instance or having only intrinsic form with little or no attempt at pictorial representation or narrative content. Today, abstract art is not in and of itself considered particularly revolutionary. It is just one of the innumerable approaches artists may take in pursuit of their vision. But this wasn't always the case and the history and tradition of abstraction and abstract art is still rather new in comparison to the long stretch of art history. And while in its nascency, abstraction was in fact considered wildly revolutionary. There's a lot that can still be mined looking back to the roots of abstraction and learning about what inspired artists' departure from traditional figurative and representational modes of art making, as well as by looking at how the reverberations of early abstraction can still be felt today. To delve into what abstractionism is, as well as some of the style's most historically important practitioners, we're here with Artnet's co-head of post-war and contemporary art, Martina Badovic, and curator and collector, Dakota Sika. Martina and Dakota, thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle today. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Martina, when... We're thinking about abstraction and the history of abstract movements. Where should people be looking to? Where can we trace it to historically? History of abstraction is more than simply a narrative of formal innovations. A lot of it includes responses to social and cultural change. The word itself comes from abstrahere in Latin, to pull away from, literally. So I think it's important to contextualize that Art develops organically and naturally. Sometimes art historians like to put artificial boundaries around movements and artists. And abstraction is just over 100 years old. Today, it's widely acknowledged that earliest abstraction comes from Pierre Mondrian, Vasily Kandinsky, Kazimir Malevich, in almost equal measure, who worked in completely different circumstances and were coming stylistically to their own kind of ideas of what abstraction should be. But also, thanks to some painstaking work by laborers of art history, we now know of many abstract artists and movements that have been left out of the mainstream art history. And we are discovering these artists who were exploring concepts of abstraction and visual language across geographies and even gender. Artists like Hilma F. Klint come to mind as someone very ahead of her time in experimentation and in the field of geometric abstraction. With the Second World War looming large in Europe in the middle of the 20th century, artists seek refuge in New York and with them bring ideas, including seeds of abstract painting and abstraction. 
This all gives us some background and color to how different abstraction was being explored and created around the world and in the early and mid 20th century. Mondrian, he made quite an impression on New York. You mentioned Victory Boogie Woogie previously. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of reception that had and what it came out of? Mondrian is an interesting artist because he starts from depicting nature, landscape, moves through cubism, then eliminates the black lines that limit the color, then explores only the color. And in a sense, the epitome of this comes for him when he travels to New York in 1940s, completely immerses himself in New York life, ignoring and escaping what's happening in Europe at the same time. And in his work, Victory Boogie Woogie, he creates something where we can see the light and the energy of New York. We can see the forms, we can see the color, but also purely geometrically, the canvas is completely liberated from any forms of obstruction or any forms of figuration in it. Undoubtedly, with this, it had an effect in what was happening in New York at the time artistically. And for listeners, too, when we're talking about abstraction in New York, I think the first thing that comes to many people's minds is abstract expressionism, probably one of the biggest movements of the past century and really inspired a lot of offshoots and developments. Dakota, can you just talk a bit about what abstract expressionism is? You may have heard, you know, that word abstract expressionism or its shorthand abex. And basically what it refers to is actually very central to where we are right now. Taking place in New York City in the 1950s after the Second World War. This was a time where artists like Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein, Arshel Gorky, Robert Motherwell, and Adolf Gottlieb, just to name a few, were making big, expressive, bold paintings, which this term by the critics at the time, Clement Greenberg and Rosenberg, coined this phrase, abstract expressionism. Often we hear mainly about the male painters in this era. However, there also were female abstract painters including Joan Mitchell, Lee Krasner, and one of my personal favorites, Helen Frankenthaler. To define abstract expressionism is a little tricky, though, because a lot of these painters switch between making abstract paintings and figurative paintings. In a kind of summary, there's a great quote that says, It is for better to capture the glorious spirit of the sea than to paint all of its tiny ripples. And that puts emphasis on what these artists were doing, is they were after emotion, they were after visceral feeling of paint on the canvas, rather than the figurative interpretations of imagery and painting. Speaking of Helen Frankenthaler, I think she's a great example of a starting point of how New York abstraction really had almost a domino effect across the country and inspired other artists who maybe weren't here at the time and other movements. Yeah. So, I mean, back to Frankenthaler, this is where it gets a little technical. Some people will consider her as a second generation abstract expressionist, but that also bleeds into, no pun intended, color field painting. So her big artistic breakthrough was the soak stain technique. And this is where Frankenthaler is watering down acrylic and oil paint and pouring it directly onto the surfaces of her canvases. 
this was such an inspiration that at the advice of Clement Greenberg, Morris Lewis and Kenneth Nolan traveled to Frankenthaler studio to see a painting, which is called Mountains and Sea. And this was Frankenthaler's seminal breakthrough work that ended up inspiring Morris Lewis and Nolan to paint in the way they did. And the distinction here between abstract expressionism and the color field movement was the abstract expressionists had a kind of central focus in a lot of their canvases where the color field painters were looking at the canvas as a whole. Uh, flatness also played a role in that. I view Mark Rothko also as a bridge between these two evolving schools of thoughts. And when we're considering mid-century, 20th century, it's easy to see how obviously there's varying perceptions of it, but New York was really the epicenter of at least the art world and many other worlds. But despite that, abstraction was really taking root in Europe and internationally as well at the same time. But their conceptual starting points were often very disparate. I'm wondering, Martina, if you can tell us how maybe New York abstraction and European-based abstraction differed conceptually? I think it's important to say that not only do they differ conceptually in terms of where these two elements of society, in terms of where New York was at the time and American life and life in Europe in the post-war period were from the political and societal point of view, it's very different. Europe is reeling from the end of the most destructive period in human history, from the end of the Second World War. The countries are literally destroyed. The societies are very vulnerable. And artists are coming from this not only psychological mindset, but also visual language of pure destruction around them. And they approach painting, they approach art making in a very different way to their counterparts in New York. This is especially true in countries that were on the losing side of the Second World War, where they really had a lot of reckoning to do. They look at the canvas thinking, where do we go now? What do we do after all of that we have been through and the world has been through? And what they turn to, which is not dissimilar to what some of the early abstractionists were doing, they look at the plane of the canvas and think what they can do with that, how they can work with that. And especially in Italy, in Italian art, with artists like Lucia Fontana, they go to the canvas and they cut it, he pierces it, he works with it, he goes through the canvas. And these artists are starting to use what we call the object of canvas as the painting itself. So they start to paint with shadow, with holes, with light, with cuts, literally. In Germany, with artists like Gunther Oecker, he's painting with nails. He's literally physically stabbing nails into boards, creating abstract forms and shades and shadows, which is a very aggressive process to create something very lyrical. And at the far end of the world, in a sense, in Japan, we have the Gutai group, who in the 50s and 60s are creating absolutely beautiful gestural abstraction, which spiritually and intellectually has completely different roots to what's happening on the other side of the world. So when we look at abstract creation, I think it's also relevant to understand the historical context of what was happening in the world, especially around where the artist communities were working together and working in this field. Despite having this broad international 
historical foundation being very much early 20th century and its beginnings, abstraction is still very relevant today and there's still very much a strong audience for it. And I think a hunger to continue looking back both at its origins, but also at its effects. Martina, why do you think there is still such a strong audience and interest? Abstraction eliminates traditional formal vocabulary of perspective, line, shape, the voluminosity of an object. And instead, it uses a fairly limited formal toolkit of color, gesture, symmetry, geometry. But it's constantly renewed by the challenge to respond to an ever-changing world. Abstraction is freedom. It's freedom away from the limitations of pictorial formalities, from the fixed viewpoints of figurative artworks, and it offers that freedom to the viewer of freedom of interpretation, and it offers freedom to the artist, the freedom to express themselves and express more emotion. At the moment, the art market shows us that collecting abstraction is on the rise. I can only imagine that people might be getting weary of looking at figuration and having the same thing stare back at them. And Dakota, just in your work as a curator and a collector yourself and gallerist, what has been your observations about this ongoing interest and fascination with abstraction? Well, what I really love about abstraction is that the barrier for entry is very low. I mean, you don't have to have a degree in art or be a curator or even a collector. When you walk into a museum, you're confronted with a painting and there's no previous knowledge that you have to have to interpret and experience that work. And in a way, that democratic viewership is what these artists were trying to get at. They were making paintings that really provoked this human sense of wanting to touch the surface of something and see the color and, you know, be enveloped by the work. And so I find that as people enter the art world, they are very comfortable with looking at abstract paintings and just having an opinion. I have clients sometimes that will still look at paintings and say, oh, I see a cow there. I see, you know, a person and really it's not, it's not there, but that's a fine and valid interpretation and a fun and unique way to look at work. And on the flip side, figurative work, it's specific. There's a kind of often a narrative there or, you know, a certain time period and abstraction is totally timeless. I mean, from the cave paintings to now, it's always going to be uh, relevant and interesting and viewed and digested in new ways to new generations. And also I think there's something about abstraction that confuses our brains when we look at an abstract painting or anything that we don't understand. There is something in us that is trying to decipher what we're seeing and what we're looking at, whether that's a prehistoric instinct to decipher if we're in danger, whether it's just really trying to understand what we're looking at. There is something that draws us again and again to abstract works in a way that, as Dakota just said, with figuration, it's a lot more served to you what you're looking at. It's a lot more available, whereas with abstraction, it keeps us guessing. Where do you think this desire and interest comes in to continually reevaluate the canon and look back at these different artists and movements? 
I think we are at such an exciting time in history and furthermore art history because everything that we thought was fixed, a fixed narrative of abstract painters is now being shaken up, broken and restructured in a lot of ways. And one of the big beneficiaries of that are many overlooked female abstract painters. Just to name a few, in history, they were referred to the wives of, but we have Lee Krasner, Jackson Pollock's wife. We have Elaine de Kooning, Willem de Kooning's wife. And at the time, you know, they were just footnoted in history where they were really incredible painters in their own right and just happened to be married to these artists. And so I think collectors, museum curators, and other art world people alike are having a field day to discover these works, to talk about these careers and rewrite some of these narratives. So some of this interest in rewriting the histories is driven politically in some sense. It's very topical to the times that we live in now in terms of equality and the history of art wasn't male. That's just as simple as it goes. It just was written that way. So I think a lot of people are now looking back and saying, wait, hold on, there were women there. There were African-American artists there. There were artists of different cultures and genders and backgrounds there. And that's all great work. Now on the market side, when we look at a painting of Jackson Pollock being over $100 million, then we have to say, well, why isn't a Janet Sobel painting worth more? Janet Sobel is a very interesting artist that we're beginning to learn about who has a museum show coming up because she's thought to be the first one to make the drip and that Pollock borrowed that language from her paintings. Some other artists that come to my mind are Hedda Stern. Who's Hedda Stern, you might ask? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people were asking it. And now if you go to the MoMA or the Met, you'll be able to see works that have been in their collections for decades now being put back on view. So there's a famous photo called the Irascibles image, which has many of the leading abstract expressionist men. And at the very pinnacle of this portrait is Hedda Stern standing proudly atop. And it's just amazing that for years people could see this photo and she was virtually invisible. But now we're seeing those artists come to the forefront. Just this past November, Hedda Stern set a new auction record at Sotheby's for around $800,000. Seems like a bargain if a Rothko is selling for $100 million. So these are just a lot of things to think about as we go forward in art history and the market. I think the interesting thing about where we are in art history and in the art market is this conscious effort to look back and see whether we have missed anything in the history of art. And we have missed a lot of things. And all of these new artists and movements and pockets of geography that we are re-evaluating and looking over again with a finer tooth comb also make us think what the art world production would look like today and what the works created today would look like had the artists working today had a richer tapestry of art history in front of them of what the 20th century art production was. We are living through a far more global world at the moment. It's a more global distribution of wealth across geographies, across demographics, across genders. And the globalized art world 
is interested in knowing more than just what is either already in museums and inaccessible, or as Dakota mentioned, of a certain price range. And they are curious to discover what was happening in different parts of the world at different times and learn more about that. And we can all only be richer for it. I mean, the price thing is also a consideration because as more and more works do enter museum collections, we think that they're not going to be deaccessioned and the prices become almost prohibitive to collect these artists. So there is also a value-minded thing for what were considered second and third tier artists historically. That might include artists like Friedel Zubas, who actually shared a studio with Helen Frankenthaler early on in his career, and his prices just always kind of lag behind. So there's a lot of very serious collectors who are truffle hunting for these sorts of things in the market where they're just looking for value of quality works because it is very difficult to not only find, but then to have the funds to acquire some of the works by these major blue chip artists. Another artist that I've been personally very excited about and am a little embarrassed to say that I was late to the game, but have been making up for it by collecting it in depth is Emily Mason. Now I have to say again, another wife of a seemingly more famous painter, Wolf Kahn. And so her career kind of took the backseat, her husband's paintings as she had to, you know, raise the family and all of this. But now after her death, we're seeing that these are incredible paintings that in my opinion, surpassed her husband's five times over. And even someone like me who is in the art world every single day, this was a sleeper. This was an entire career that I was totally unaware of and have now become very active in and thrilled just to discover Emily Mason's work. Martina, are you seeing any artists today in the market that are sort of fitting that bill of high quality and accessible? An artist that immediately comes to mind is Vivian Springford, whose beautiful colorful canvases and works on paper are something that is of museum quality. And yet when I speak to collectors or potential clients or just people interested in art, they think instinctively that it sits at a much higher price point than it actually does. And I would encourage everyone to do research and engage with art and not to be afraid of engage with auctions or gallery shows and just see art. Because oftentimes, as sadly it was said more than 10 years ago, I think it to some extent remains true to be said that women artists are the bargains of our day in the market, in that there is still a lot of runway for their art markets to develop. And I think especially it's worth doing a bit of looking and seeing because you might be surprised at some of the price points and accessibility that they might open up. I just want to put a caveat out there that yes, it is accessible. It's still expensive. (laughs) (laughs) It is is more accessible than the other artists that we might already be very well versed in. But I think about it in more terms of masterpieces. Like if you want to buy a masterpiece by Picasso, you probably will not ever have the opportunity in this lifetime or next, or it's just not going to happen. They're in museums or they're in the Freeport and they're not coming out. But if you want to buy a masterpiece by Joan Mitchell or Frankenthaler or Grace Hardigan or Lee Krasner, this is something that is doable within your lifetime. And then if you look even further afield, 
you know, some of the lesser known names, their masterpieces are probably surprisingly within some collector's budgets. And if you're really historically focused and willing to, you know, do some reading, you can probably find even lesser known female artists that you can buy their best work and will still have legs in the future. So as far as accessibility, even physically accessible, not even price point, because as you say, a lot of these super well-known artist masterpieces, it wouldn't even be an issue of money. Yes. When I think about masterpieces, I think in terms of lifetime. So if in any you know, human life expectancy, will that painting even come to the market? And so, you know, sometimes these things are held in families for, you know, four or five generations and museums obviously will never sell them. So, you know, even if you made a ton of money, it's like, will you be able to buy the best of the best? And that's why it's such an exciting time in art history with the female and some other overlooked artists is that you actually have the opportunity to do that. You can buy a painting basically as good as the Met. You know, like if you want to buy a head of Stern, you can probably buy a head of Stern as good as the Whitney has or the MoMA has. And that's like an insane statement to say, to actually even think about that that is a finite time period in our lives where we'll be able to do that because it's not the case for any of the other artists that we mentioned. And I think it's useful to add that the market gives what the market wants. The market can only respond to the needs in the market. It's a supply and demand question as well. So we need collectors who are educated and curious and interested in these artists and in these periods and maybe even periods that we're only learning about now and sustain them and come back to them because the more we see that activity, the more collectors will be open to considering perhaps either releasing some of the works in their collection or even coming to us when we're working around how best to place works in collection privately. One additional thing, which is also mind-boggling, is you could go to an art fair and you could buy a painting by a 30-year-old artist that is the same price as one of these overlooked artists we're talking about. So how does that make sense? You have an entire career no more paintings are being made by those artists because they're deceased. And yet these 30 year olds are selling for multiples of what you can buy the historic material for. So that's obviously a huge price disparity that just from a financial sense, you can look at and say, okay, well, this just doesn't make sense. Looking back at all these different artists, Emily Mace and Hedda Stern, we're coming to the fore. This is sort of asking you to look into the future. But is it possible that in a century from now, even, that our understanding perception of 20th century abstraction could look totally different than what we consider it today? A hundred percent, yes. And I think that we have to go into the future with open-mindedness and understanding that there are lateral realities going on at any given time. And all of these isms, abstract expressionism, minimalism, you know, we're in an ism right now and we don't even know what that is. But I guarantee you there's many other isms happening simultaneously. And sometimes those stories take decades to come out. 
Hilma off Klimt was a perfect example. Look, that was an entire time capsule of work. We could have easily written that off of history, but here we are saying, wow, I mean, this was an entire career that was so far ahead of its time. It almost seems like it's celestial. So you have to, going forward, keep an open mind, keep researching, and that's the joy of discovery. And it's quite possible then that at some point, these overlooked women artists and similar could themselves become major blue chip at some point. I would say they're already blue chip. I just think there's more of them to come. And I think that the prices right now, and that's was kind of what I referenced earlier about being in an amazing part in art history, but also in the art market, we're seeing things for pennies on the dollar. You know, it's kind of like when you hear a story of, oh yeah, you know, the museum curator was able to buy that major Pollock canvas for $5,000. Well, that's what's happening now with the female artists. And there will be smart, savvy collectors today who are championing the work that we'll see in years to come that it was the biggest bargain going. I do think we are living through a very exciting time in art history and particularly in the art market and particularly when women artists are concerned. And I loathe to say that as an art historian and as a woman, because I know every artist just wants to be recognized for being an artist, not by their gender. But if we are looking through the gender lens, we are really living through a time where there is just so much more interest in the works of different lived experiences and different career trajectories that women artists had. Inevitably, whether there's been child rearing or not in their lives, in their careers, whether they were stop and start moments in their careers. I'm definitely seeing from collectors who are now independently making acquisition decisions when they're women, they want to look at artists who had similar lived experiences. And all of that feeds into a more dynamic art world and a more dynamic and I think a more fair and democratic reassessment of art history, which could only be beneficial for the future. Martina, that's a very good point. And I think we should note that a lot of the female artists of that time, they did push back against these labels. So they didn't want to be known as female painters. They wanted to be known as good painters. And some of them even went as far to you know sign their paintings with male names. So collectors would take their work seriously. So I think at the end of the day, it really is about quality works. And I think we can see that today, too, even with younger painters. They just want to be recognized as good artists. That's an interesting point, too, because even though we're talking mainly retrospectively here, abstraction as a tool for artists is extremely common today still. And the effects of 20th century abstraction has become very quotidian in the art world. Are there any living artists that either of you are finding particularly exciting, who you see is proverbially carrying the flag of abstraction and the tradition of it in a historical sense today? As someone who's based in London and as a true Londoner, I'm about to spotlight some London-born artists and kind of London-bred artists because it's extraordinary to see what's happening in the landscape especially for female artists. The most expensive living female artist is Janice Saville. She's someone who really defies characterization and everything we've talked about, whether it's abstraction or figuration, it's just so much more than that. 
but I also think she opened the door and brought painting to life at a time where for the upteenth time we were being told that the painting is dead and we still see that the painting is very much not dead. And it's incredibly exciting to see in the younger generation of artists, early career artists with names like Flora Yuknovich and Jade Fadajutimi, just how brave and experimental they are and how much they're willing to push the boundaries and create just a completely new language and abstraction and what it has to offer. Yeah, that's interesting. It almost seems like in this new era, whereas before you, it was sort of an either or abstraction pushing away from figuration. Today, artists are not seeing them as diametrically opposed in any capacity. Dakota, are there any artists that you've been following recently? Well, so on the historic side, and this might not be any great revelation, but I'm a big fan of Larry Poon's. I just went to 425 Park, which is a new restaurant, and they have a Larry Poon's large, maybe like 30-foot abstract painting installed over the bar. It's fantastic. And also another one, Frank Stella. I mean, these are artists that are still alive, that were considered abstract expressionists. And I just saw a few days ago, he's having a show coming up at Jeffrey Deitch, which, you know, I think of a very young, hip, kind of cool gallery. And you got Stella, you know, making these amazing abstract sculptures, which are more or less in large brush strokes that are 3D printed and welded aluminum. So you do have these historic artists still reinventing what abstract painting can be. And then on a very emerging side, I'm totally blown away by, I apologize if I'm saying her name wrong, but Grace Carney at PPOW Gallery. These are gorgeous canvases and you can see the through lines of that history where these younger artists are definitely looking back at historical artists and making incredible paintings in new ways. Another name like that is Carrie Rudd with Polina Berlin Gallery. I collect her work as well. And I think she is a fantastic painter that's going to be very exciting to watch. It's so interesting looking at practitioners of abstraction or elements of abstraction today, like Jenny Saville and numerous other artists happening at the same time as this ongoing reappraisal of historic abstraction as well as the sort of building excitement of what abstraction, either market-wise or through artists, will bring in the future. And thank you so much, Martina and Dakota, for speaking with us about all three. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.